This is the Iron Workers Rising podcast, standing with you to fight for workers' rights everywhere. Welcome to our regular segment we call Irons in the Fire, where we keep you up to date on what's new and changing within our organization and around the world. Here's a shout out for the iron workers at KBL Reinforcing and Black Iron Reinforcing in Las Vegas, Nevada, as well as South Coast Iron, La Habra, California, for exercising their rights, having voted, and are now waiting on decisions from the National Labor Relations Board. Also, to the iron workers at Sureline Construction from Kenton, Delaware, you will be voting soon. Remember, now is your time. It is your time to vote yes. Yes to have a voice on the job, yes to improve your working conditions, and yes for a better future for you and your family. Stay strong, stay united, and you will win. We'd also like to thank our affiliate, the Labor Radio Podcast Network. You can find them at www.laborradionetwork.org, where you can find our podcast, as well as other great labor-related podcasts like Your Rights at Work. And now for the Iron Workers Rising podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Iron Workers Rising podcast. I'm Ron Gray, and today we are talking organizing and why we need to grow our membership. Our guest today is the Iron Workers General President, Eric Dean. Thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Ron. Thank you. And thanks for taking the time to make this happen. Now, I know back in the uh, May and June edition of the Iron Workers magazine, it was pretty much dedicated to organizing. In addition, the International put out your video, same deal organizing and detailed the challenges we face, why we need to up our membership and why the time to organize is now. It's basically what we're going to talk about today. Could you tell me about the amping up of our organizing efforts as well as promoting organizing at all levels? Sure. Every year at the General Executive Council meetings, we're required constitutionally to have a minimum of two a year, but we have more. And we discuss things that are working, not working. And we've identified that while we had organizing teams in place, the effectiveness of our organizing program, coupled with our apprenticeship training program, was like just keeping us our head above water as far as the work goes and whatnot. And then we, uh, we experienced COVID a little bit. So we had a repositioning of work and as we were looking at it, we see more and more people heading for the door, you know, natural retirements, baby boomers, whatnot. And we were not seeing any organizing activity. Well, we were seeing organizing activity, but we weren't seeing any like real traction or benefit to it. And so we took a, about a year ago, we took an introspective look with our executive council to talk amongst our vice presidents, amongst our district council presidents and say like, these are the programs and policies we have in place, you know, where is the efficiency in what we're doing? Where is the inefficiency in what we're doing? How can we get more buy-in? And the consensus after talking to everyone was, we need the support of the rank and file members. You know, we got the finances, we got the resources, but if the members don't see the value in organizing, sometimes it's hard for the elected local union leadership to do that. So the ask was that I went to the next impact meeting and on our Labor Day, just convey where we were, what our thoughts were going forward. And if you couple that with President Biden's administration and passing the infrastructure bill and taking a look at where our workforce was, we recognized that apprenticeship alone was going to do it. We needed to strengthen our investment in organizing, 
build more acceptance by the rank and file organizing, therefore unshackling the local union leadership's ability to want to organize. And then we started measuring what our efficacy or efficiency was of organizing. And quite frankly, our favorite pattern was stripping, which was when we got busy, we went and got guys from the non-union, put them to work. There was a few that stayed within the union ranks and many, when the work was done, a short duration, they did not stay. So we started coupling that with campaigns to actually target the employers where these non-union guys were working. In addition to going to organize the unorganized workers, we had to organize the employers simultaneously to create some permanent places to work in addition to what our current workload was. And I would tell you that, you know, we have a, organizing checkoff that funds organizing that the locals and the members pay for indexed off of their wages and as we implement the strategy we we saw that there was not only a growing demand for work but workers but a, a real lack of willingness to broadly accept it so we kind of repatterned what our priorities were and our communication strategy so that the members have buy-in so that the international continues to do what they're doing in concert with the local unions and, and district councils. Long answer to a short question. No problem. But you, you mentioned our rank and file members. How can they as individuals make a difference? Well, many of the rank and file members are supportive of organizing and they understand that that's a core tenet of the union, that they need to organize the unorganized. It's in the preamble of our constitution. The struggle is many of the, the local unions have relied solely on apprenticeship intake. So there's a lot of our members that just don't see any value in a person who doesn't go to serve an apprenticeship. They don't realize, you know, that 90% of the national workforce is unorganized and didn't go through an apprenticeship or their ex-members and for whatever reason fell out of the union. But many of the people there think that the apprenticeship's the only way to go. Well, we, we quantified the number of apprentices we were turning out on an annual basis. And sorry to tell all our members, but just came from a North American Billing Trades meeting, got about a 50% graduation rate across all the trades. That's the same as us. So if we train 20,000 apprentices over a four-year cycle, we're only getting 50% of those to graduate. And out of that 50%, that number for us was about 2,000 annually. And it wasn't going to resupply the workforce based on the demand of the known work we have, both in mega projects and the, just the regular order of work that we're doing on an ongoing basis. And so convincing the rank and file member that we're not organizing members just to take their jobs, but to strengthen our bargaining power, strengthen the local union, and by putting in more skilled workers into our union, then when we go to collectively bargain, we don't have people watering down negotiations. We can actually raise and improve benefits, conditions, uh, safety, and strengthen their strength in numbers. And the more we have, the better our bargaining power has always been. Right now, we are looking for new organizers to uh, help increase the membership. And what thoughts and advice would you have for any of our current members that have applied or are thinking about applying? As a union, we always elect our business agents and local elected officials from the local unions. The locals that tend to fear organizing really want their business agents to work for 
the cadre of members that you currently have or you run through that traditional apprenticeship pipeline. And the organizer is not elected. It's not a popular position. And what it is is there's a lot of hard work. It's not a business agent's position where you go and dispatch in the morning and you close the office at a certain part. There's night visits talking to workers. There's computer research to find leverage points and vulnerability where contractors may be skirting safety laws or compromising the workers or even not just fairly compensating the workers and talking to those workers and winning their trust to build that strength. So an organizer has a skill set that isn't always the same as an elected official. That's not to say business agents don't organize because that's not true or business managers. But the organizer's position is one where a worker is willing to go out, convince workers that they're better off banding together than working individually to stop either their exploitation or to prove their standard of living. The organizer also has to be tenacious enough to stand up to a contractor who's going to be somewhat antagonistic or even uh, monopolistic as far as hiring lawyers, creating criticisms, uh, using fear and intimidation, both on the worker and the organizer. So it has to be someone who's a you know strong will, having the uh, vision to see that bringing more people into the union and, and broadening what they've availed themselves through a better life through the union with better wages, better conditions, and articulate that to the worker. And that's not always uh, easy because the workers sometimes are fearful that their employer or their other co-workers might not be in the same mindset. So it takes someone who's got some dynamic uh, uh, communication skills, a strong work ethic, and uh, be willing to work tireless hours at night and on doing the research that's necessary find the leverage points. And it's not for everyone because it's not so rewarding. The National Labor Relations Board isn't always favorable to passing union elections. And there's a lot of hurdles that you got to go through. And so an organizer is a special breed. And some people cut their teeth and really learn how to do it. Others, oftentimes, you know, they're natural at it. They start out right from the vet. They're good communicators. They got to get the computer skill or they got to learn how to build that capacity and trust of the open shop worker that they're there to help them and they're going to be there all the way through and not just, you know, they're, they're going to be portrayed a little bit as someone that's just to put their hand in the pocket for union dues and not realize all the value they bring and the strengthening of their personal lives by joining the union. And that, you know, organizers has got to be a communicator and a researcher and tenacious on his work skills. Special breed for sure. Yes, it's a difficult job, uh, but it can be rewarding just to make some workers' lives better. Back in the day, my local didn't have dedicated organizers, and I was a business agent and an organizer. And I oftentimes go to union meetings and I'll see some of the members I helped organize and, you know, know that they got a 10 or 15 or 20 year track record with benefits, retirement security. And, you know, they, they really appreciate the fact that I did never call them scabs. I, I just, they never had an opportunity to join the union. I convinced them 
joining the union was a better way to go, you know, and uh, like I said, the laws have become more and more complex and more in favor of contractors. Only recently, the NLRB has tilted in our favor. It's, uh, it is truly rewarding. It makes you feel really good about giving someone the life of time of opportunity, better wages and benefits, and a safer job site. No doubt about that. In the history of, of unions and our union as well, at, at times they've kept themselves artificially small to ensure that their active members were fully employed and that they didn't have too many workers unemployed. What can you tell our membership today on how the philosophy and times have changed and how we can keep our current membership as well as all new members working? Well, with the strategy of organizing the workers and their employers, that should give comfort to the regular rank and file membership that we're not just trying to flood the bench with workers and create more underemployed iron workers, but we're actually trying to bring the jobs along with the workers and sign the employers. The local union, I started by some of my remarks talking about, they're elected and you know they're at the whim of the rank and file. So if the rank and file is fearful of that, sometimes it'll handcuff the leaders and then they'll be fearful of that. And they gotta be able to see the long game and what we're trying to do by helping to represent all those engaged in the industry. They got to see if they lose market share when they go to negotiate, they're not getting the best possible collective bargaining agreements because the open shop tends to water down that ability. You know, the contractors have to keep themselves within the price comparison and the higher the market share in an area, well, oftentimes the better the collective bargaining agreements. No, no doubt about it. Yeah, I think that would make a lot of the rank and file members uh, more apt to understand what's going on and, and that, you know, in bringing on the employers with the workers, we're bringing on the jobs. I'm a fourth generation ironworker. I served an apprenticeship. Many ironworkers view their apprenticeship as somehow a penance or like a prison sentence they served. And they believe if they served an apprenticeship, everyone has to serve an apprenticeship. And I would dare any of the rank and file members to equate someone who's been open shop for 10 or 12 years. They served an apprenticeship in a different way out on a job site through trial and error and learning different things or maybe going on their own to the technical college to learn how to weld or even just learn how to weld on the job. They didn't have the luxury of being an apprentice and having a graduated, you know, the, the journeyman had patience because you started out at a base wage. And then you graduated with your knowledge through your progression and skill sets. A lot of those people got theirs the hard way, working open shop, trial and error, sometimes on safe conditions, sometimes less than satisfactory equipment. And so for me, I just, you know, I, I view the privilege to serve an apprenticeship was a privilege for me. It wasn't a prison sentence. Like some guys, like I served an apprenticeship you got to serve an apprenticeship too. These unorganized members a lot of times have served an apprenticeship in a different way through the open shop, cutting their teeth, and they got calluses on their hands and they got the holes in their blue jeans and they've been through trial and error some things. Some of them just didn't have the opportunity to join the union or know when we were taking the apprenticeship classes in. And it's not a matter of that they're anti-union. They just never had an opportunity to be in the union. You mentioned that, you know, we understand that the apprenticeship alone is not going to keep up with the demand for iron workers and that we, you know, bringing in non-union iron workers 
we need to somehow give them credit for the skills and the other things that they've earned. And in other words, will the new iron workers be expected to, you know, go through something like an apprenticeship or will there be other methods to determine their skill levels and qualifications as, as to where they'd rank as far as a journeyman goes? A lot of locals use their examining board and if a person's got the skills, they're allowed to challenge the test, take the test and not serve an apprenticeship. The other need is the open shop sometimes doesn't have the qualifications and certifications that we offer through our regimented apprenticeship program, but also for journeyman upgrading. So a lot of times newly organized members will have to go through and maybe get an OSHA 10 card, maybe an OSHA 30 card or a welding certification. So the burden is still going to be on those training centers to round off those people's skills or assess their skills, determine what they're competent in, and then round out the deficiency of what they're not competent in. That's a long-winded answer to not directly answer. Um, I always thought that the local unions that insist that everyone go through the apprenticeship, well, you got sometimes we're trying to organize a person they've been 15 years in the rod patch. You're going to make that person go back to school and kind of demean their job site knowledge or whatever. So there's a way of figuring out whether a person's capable or whether they're a journeyman welder, a journeyman cheater, a journeyman structural iron worker. A JIW oftentimes is obtained through the apprenticeship program and that rounds off all your skills and you go through those progression of tests. But I would tell you local unions would be wise to use the probationary member program for organized members, work with the employers and the supervisors on the job to figure out what skill sets these newly organized workers have and what they're deficient in, and then run them through a journeyman upgrading program to round out those skills. But some don't need anything. I, I've worked with some non-union guys who run circles around guys that served a full apprenticeship. So, you know, it's a, it, it depends on where you're from and the level of competence. And not every open shop guy runs circles around our guys, but not every open shop guy is uh, limited in skill either. They're, you know, they carry a lot of tools in their toolbox as well. If we go back to, to the magazine article and, and the video, within there, we had statistics and we have over 67,000 journeymen right now. And there was a projection for just the state of Texas requiring 61,000 workers in 2026. And due to the infrastructure spending and, and everything like that, what do you feel is like a realistic or acceptable percentage of growth for our union? If I just pull a number out of thin air, I'll, I'll just be guessing or taking a stab at it. Um, I'm never satisfied, so I'm always hungry for more. Maybe I, I have an insatiable thirst that I can't quench by no matter how many members we got, we have. I always think that there's more who are underrepresented or being exploited by contractors. So the number needs to go significantly up. And I've asked everyone to determine measurable market share gains over the next five years with this opportunity from government spending, energy sector stuff, electronic vehicles. There's a whole myriad of different things I could point to. And it's easy to measure where our membership statistics are. Are we gonna keep up with the growth in the economy or are we just gonna put more people to work and call a rising number good? So it's gotta be coupled with market share and recognize that the contract, and not only do we need more members, 
but some of our contractors are at capacity. So we need to add more employers to our union signatory ranks through that organizing program. So it's a two-way street. We got to see membership growth. We got to see contractor growth. And then couple that with market share growth. If there was a you know, doubling of work in an area and we have a thousand more members, am I supposed to be happy because we got a thousand more members than we had? Or making market share gains through more employers, more iron workers. And in the end, I guess that's the report card I'll judge both myself on, our organization, and the effectiveness of the strategy we're trying to deploy. I can understand that. I mean, I'd like to say that it would be nice to not rest until every worker was represented. But uh, that's that's an awful difficult task. Lately in the news, and I'm sure you've seen it, everyone's seen it, there's a 57-year high where 71% of the people in our country right now support unions. It's a very encouraging stat, but unfortunately, union membership remains low at somewhere around 10.3%. Where do you think there's the disconnect? Is it political, the difficulty associated with the right to work states, or something to do with our, obviously, our labor laws and the NLRB? Well, there's no doubt by age demographics, the younger people strongly support unions. And across the board, Americans see the value in collective bargaining. It's probably multifaceted. I'd say the first facet that I would tell you where young people have more appreciation for union, this is strictly speculation on my part. 2008, there was a housing bubble, and I think a lot of young people saw their relatives, their family members, their loved ones struggle. Either, well, you know, keeping up with bills. There was a lot of foreclosures at that time. There were people who had to sell houses and become renters, you know, give up the American, perceived American dream. But in a lot of kids' eyes, as they pursued their education secondarily through college or whatever it is, is that no matter what I do, I think union representation will allow me to speak with a greater voice than me as an individual that can be just disposed of or or marginalized by corporations that coupled with we have a long tenured membership you know i'm I'm on my 40th year started when i was 19 years old i'm 61 years old we got a lot of old dogs that don't necessarily they either they we've lived the life of being a trade unionist and so you don't have to convince me but for the longest period of my adult life, people said, go to college. Unions have outlived their, outlived their usefulness. Uh, they got gains. Now they've asked for too much. So you're seeing that bend now in the public perception because, I, quite frankly, I think contractors and employers overreached. And they marginalized employees. And the only people that really recognize the value are people that were within a union. But the reason the public perception now sees that so I, I see the potential, you know, you, in any industry, not just the construction industry. I'm seeing nurses stand up, teachers stand up where they had, uh, you know, massive job actions. And workers are tired of being uh, marginalized. And uh, I see, I, I, I'm seeing that if we steer them in the right direction, offer them voice and not tell them how to think or what to think, 
but that their union represents their their thoughts and actions will gain membership and will gain uh, some of these uh, union market share losses on the public perception back. And you're seeing it every day. You had uh, Striketober last year. You're seeing young people support unions, broad uh, collective bargaining. And so we just got to get past some of those hurdles, those institutional hurdles, and quite frankly, pretty strong anti-worker, anti-labor laws, right to work and different things. They're taking some of our ability to grow and people haven't learned how to strategize or navigate around, you know, in the old words of my buddies in Canada, they haven't learned how to stick handle around some of the obstacles. And the issue is, is whether we're in Canada or the United States, there is a demand for workers everywhere. And now we're all competing amongst the building trades. We're competing with 21 and $25 an hour warehouse and distribution jobs. So uh, resetting uh, what our priorities are and what proper compensation is, we'll get, uh, I always say the best paid careers will attract the most candidates for work and for unionization. We just got to sometimes get out of our own way and our predisposed thoughts on how we're there and then how we broaden and take advantage of that public support for unions. Well, hey, I, I appreciate you getting on this podcast with us. And I do want to close with uh, one important question and that's regarding upcoming elections and how important it is for our members to get out there and vote for the candidates that support the organized labor. You know, what, what would you say to these workers? I know I do my homework, I do my research, and I know who I want to vote for. And uh, what would you say to these folks? We try not to tell the members who to vote for, but what are the matters and policies that will affect your daily life? Who's building your local community schools? Who's spending your tax dollars? What are the labor laws and policies in your area? And typically the building trades or the federations of labor are vetting the candidates based on worker and labor related issues. Sometimes we get sidetracked with wedge issues. It could be your moral beliefs on abortion. It could be your uh, belief in owning a firearm. Well, a lot of those are not bread and butter issues that feed a rank and file trade unionist iron worker. It's about who's going to have policies that either have government investment or foster private investment that allow uh, me to uh, work on who's going to have laws that make it easier for me to seek union representation and get collective bargaining. You know, when you're setting up the NLRB to be a pro-business anti-worker policy, oftentimes those candidates are not going to be in our best interest, but they might be uh, right on one of your core issues, non-related to work or whatever, you got to weigh what's in the best interest of working people. And I always say uh, the ballot box should be directly connected to the lunchbox for an iron worker. And then you just got to remember who's going to help put lunch in the lunchbox and how you get to work and who actually promises to do things and follows through. And then I'm going to close with something that's going to surprise a lot of people. It's not always the Democrats. We've got Republicans that uh, care about us and we support them. We have Democrats who care about us, support us. But if they've been vetted by the Federation of Labor, the Billion Trades or the local union, there's a good chance if you join a union and you agreed with an oath to abide by the will of the majority, 
take a look at who the vetted labor candidates are that support the issues that are going to put our members to work. Well, thank you very much, President Dean. Appreciate you getting on our podcast today. Thank you and all the organizing team. Uh, it's hard work, you know, um, representing workers, or, you know, our business agents, business, everybody works hard. Our rank and file members work the hardest, you know. They're on the shop floor, they're on the job site. But convincing people that there's a better way to go forward and getting around the fear peddling and the issues, the organizing team has some of the heaviest lift in our business. So getting to talk about this through the podcast, just uh, I, I just hope there's a lot of people clicking on and listening. And then my words don't ring hollow and I talk to 25 people who click on this thing. But finding a way to disseminate this information and talk directly to the members is kind of what I, I eat, breathe, and sleep this stuff. And it's kind of been my life's work. I, I wore a belt. I switched from belt to union leadership. And then I came to Washington. There's no more important call to action right now than to organize. Organizing the unorganized, giving them the same chance that we all had and however we got into this uh, union. So I hope everyone takes that to heart. Thank you for listening to the Ironworkers Rising podcast, your Ironworkers network. Please check us out on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and at www.ironworkersrising.org.